Hello, and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 8, A Tale of Two Islands. Today, I'm going to bring you a tale of two islands, Guam, Mauritius, and Hawaii. I'm going to bring you the tale of three islands, Guam, Mauritius, and Hawaii. Although, technically, Hawaii is an archipelago of over 130 islands. Damn it, I just want one Charles Dickens ref. Today, we're going to talk about islands. Again, last time we saw how islands are a hotbed of biodiversity. Thanks to their extreme isolation and unique habitats, when a bird turns up on these tiny spits, evolution kicks in and churns out a whole array of species that are found nowhere else but on their out-of-the-way oceanic homes. This is marvellous, but it's also dangerous. Because when we talk about tiny habitats surrounded by deadly, deadly ocean, it means that if anything goes wrong, the inhabitants tend to die. Sadly, when we look at birds most at risk of extinction, what a lot of them have in common is their island-dwelling tendency. Today, we're going to look at these islands and their birds, see what went wrong, and then see if we can do anything to set things right. So to begin, let's pick up where we left off. On Hawaii, with birds so freaky, bees put out a restraining order on them. That's right, I'm talking about the honey creepers. Mmm, they get freaky with the honey. Yeah, you're real sweet stuff, you coy little... First, a quick creep recap. This is a unique family of birds that all evolved from the rosefinch. To avoid competition with each other, multiple species evolved to exploit different niches, niches on the island. Some became nectar feeders, other became seed crackers, some stalked insects, while others became jack-of-all-trade generalists. To aid them with their chosen speciality, they developed radically different appearances. Some look like tiny parrots with hooked beaks. Others have long, slender bills that match the shape of the flowers they like to feed on, while others maintained their finchy appearance. From stub beaks to sickle-like blades, the honeycreepers all went their own way. You'll remember, this is a type of adaptive radiation where dozens of different species all evolve from a common ancestor. Evolution, essentially. Now, I mentioned last time that nearly half of all known honeycreepers are extinct, and the other half are flirting with the concept. There have been two major waves of extinction on the islands. The first, when Polynesians arrived, and the second when Europeans arrived. For some reason, people in nature just don't mix. Now, there are the usual factors that led to their decline, deforestation and the introduction of invasive species, but there is another more unusual reason that is unique to Hawaii, and it's the same reason why peoples of the New World had such a rough time when they first encountered peoples from the Old World because they brought something the New World didn't have. Disease. In South America, smallpox, cholera, and the flu killed millions of people that had no natural immunity to those diseases. This is exactly what's happened on Hawaii, only to their birds. And the disease that did it? Avian malaria. 
So how did malaria get there in the first place? Well, it was a two-step process, and to understand it, we're going to have to go back to the year 1826. Back then, the HMS Wellington of the British Royal Navy was making a stopover in Maui. The crew were eager to take on fresh water after many months at sea, so they took their water barrels down to the local stream to refill them. Innocent enough. Little did they know that in the stale water they dumped out were the floating wrigglers of mosquito larvae. Up until then, no mosquitoes had existed on the islands. But mosquitoes alone a disease does not make. Wait, does that make sense? Mosquitoes don't make disease? Mosquitoes don't have disease? Look, all I'm trying to say is the malaria didn't arrive with the mosquitoes. At the time, they were clean. They might be the vector for disease, the means through which a disease spreads, but without the disease itself, the mosquitoes didn't cause any harm. But now, let's skip forward about a hundred years to when chickens were introduced to the islands from the Philippines. These birds arrived with the malaria. Our mosquitoes picked it up and then spread it to the native bird population. As the local birds had no immunity to avian malaria, they proceeded to drop like flies. The population was decimated. And not just honey creepers, but all sorts of Hawaiian avian life took a nasty hit. Maybe most devastating of all were the O'O birds of the family Mohonidae. Pretty sure I said that right, like, pretty sure. These were a group of birds unique to Hawaii, which formed their own taxonomic family. To date, the O'O birds are the only entire family of birds to have been driven to extinction in modern times. The last member of the family, the Kauai O'O bird, died in 1987. The story of that last bird is a heartbreaking tale, but it's one we'll have to save for another time. Many of the honey creepers met the same fate, but a few still hang on. You see, mosquitoes don't like cold. Hawaii may be a warm tropical island paradise, but it does have mountains. Mountains where the temperature never reaches an acceptable level for mosquitoes. As the mosquitoes spread through the islands, the birds retreated into the hills, where they remained protected from the malaria. But of course, climate change may have a thing or two to say about that. As our world warms, the slim band of forest where these birds hold refuge becomes thinner and thinner. There is some evidence that a few of the species have begun to evolve a tolerance against the disease. But as those birds survive, they act as a reservoir for malaria, a place for it to harbour before being spread on to the less resistant birds. A lot of conservation work is happening to track the mosquitoes, to kill them, and create safe mosquito-free zones. But these are only temporary solutions. A more long-term solution may come by breeding a type of sterile male mosquito, incapable of breeding with the females. But that is still some way off. Until then, the fate of Hawaii's many beautiful and colourful creeps hangs in the balance. But now, let's move to another US island territory in the Pacific Ocean, Guam. That's a fun word to say. Kind of sounds like a bird call. Guam. 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 
Well, I'll stop doing that now. Now, Guam is a bouncy little ecological disaster that Kim Jong-un just wants to wipe off the map. But just how did America come to own an island in the middle of Micronesia? The answer is, eh, it's not like Spain was doing anything with it anyway. Do citizens of Guam have full democratic rights in America? The answer is no. No, they do not. But all of those questions are for a podcast that isn't about birds. Now, like all islands, Guam had a unique avian ecosystem. There were 14 birds native to the island. Three, or four depending on how you count, lived nowhere else. They were the Guam kingfisher, the Guam rail, and, wait for it, the Guam flycatcher. You might have noticed a little naming pattern there. If you couldn't tell, those birds all came from Guam. The Guam kingfisher was an adorable little fellow. It had a rusty brown-orange plumage with steel-blue wings. The rail, like so many island birds, was flightless, had black and white banded chest with brown feathers. The flycatcher was a delicate little bird that could fit in the palm of your hand, had a cute little head tuft, slate grey feathers with a long, elegant tail. Now, you might have noticed I used the past tense in those sentences. Sadly, that wasn't a grammatical error. Out of the 14 birds native to the island, today, only two can still be found there. One is the Mariana crow, the other is the Mariana grey swiftlet. So, where did all the birds go? To answer that question, we need to go back to the year 1940-ish. During this time, America and Japan were having a... spirited conversation about who owned the island. After a bit of back and forth, Japan graciously allowed America to have it. Yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate summary of how it went down. Guam then, and now, hosts an important air and naval base. And in the aftermath of World War spirited conversation, America was keen to make good use of it. During this time, there were a lot of planes flying around, shunting military hardware from one place to another, and a couple of stowaways from New Guinea snuck on board, hitched a flight, and found themselves in a new home. That stowaway was the brown tree snake. That's right, there were snakes on a plane. Where was Samuel L. Jackson when you needed him? Uh, there's also a possibility they came over on a boat. Hard to say, really. Either way, on Guam, these snakes found a place free of their natural predators. So they slithered out and got down to the business of doing what brown tree snakes do. Eating birds. Now, the birds of Guam had evolved in the absence of predators. They were what biologists call naive to their new serpent adversaries. They had no experience fearing a wriggling brown branch, and so they didn't. And so they made for easy prey. For the snakes, Guam proved to be an all-you-can-eat buffet. Within about 40 years, they had pretty much wiped out every bird on the island. The bridled white-eye, the Guam flycatcher, the Guam rail, the Mariana fruit dove, the Micronesia honeyeater, the Guam flycatcher, the Micronesia megapod, the Micronesia starling, the nightingale reed warbler, the rufous fantail, the white-throated ground dove, and the yellow bittern. All of them are no longer found on the island. The Guam flycatcher 
a species that was unique to the island, is extinct. People did kinda cotton on to what was happening, and the few remaining rails and kingfishers were captured and moved into breeding programs off the island. In recent years, the rail has been reintroduced to some smaller neighbouring islands. The kingfisher lives on only in captivity. Today, the forests of Guam are silent. The people that visit call them an eerie place, devoid of birdsong. There is no starker example of what can happen when an invasive species is introduced to an island where the locals have no natural defence. Today, there are estimated to be some 2 million snakes slithering about the island. They outnumber the human population by more than 10 to 1. Every effort to remove or control the snakes has failed. And in removing the birds from the environment, there have been knock-on effects. Guam may have been a serpent paradise, but now, without birds, it is also an arachnid paradise. Spiders make up a big part of many birds' diet, so you take away the birds and the spiders now have no predators. On top of which, the main prey of spiders, other insects and bugs, are also the main prey for birds. Without the birds, not only is there nothing to eat the spiders, but there's also nothing to eat what the spiders eat. So you get rid of their predators and give them a whole bunch of extra food, and the next thing that happens is you get a spider bonanza. By some estimates, there are about 40 times as many spiders on Guam as there are on any comparable nearby islands. So it's an island of snakes, spiders, and web, which sounds delightful for a horror film. But wait, there's more! Birds also play an important role in the seed dispersal of plants. Birds eat fruit from trees, carry them off, and poop their seeds in some new location. Without birds to perform this important function, seeds are dropped right at the foot of their parent tree, where they have a far lower chance of germinating and making it to adulthood. As a result, the forests of Guam are now in decline. I can think of no better example of how every part of an ecosystem is intimately connected to every other part. You start mucking around with one dial, and everything else gets thrown out of whack. Guam's environment, by any measure, is a raging hot mess, and all because a couple of snakes got onto an island where they didn't belong. So that kind of sucks. But let's jump again, and this time switch oceans and head to the Indian Ocean and the island of Mauritius. Now, unlike most places Europeans appropriated, Mauritius was an uninhabited island until the Portuguese turned up in 1507. They set up a bit of a stopover point for ships plying the Indian Ocean, because as we know, the spice must flow. But beyond that, they weren't terribly interested in Mauritius. So when the Dutch turned up in 1638, they found a mostly empty island, and thought, hey, wouldn't it be crazy cool if we grew sugar here? And so, that's what they did. Oh yeah, with the help of a bunch of slaves they appropriated from Madagascar. They also brought with them a bunch of pigs, dogs, ferrets, and for some reason crab-eating macaques? They're a type of monkey? More on that later. 
But it turned out their sugar idea wasn't that crazy cool, because apparently there was no money in the Enterprise, so they abandoned the island in 1710. Five years later, the French turned up and again found a mostly empty island and thought, hey, wouldn't it be crazy cool if we grew sugar here? Except this time, it worked, and they ended up with a booming economy. For about 100 years, everything was going great, until 1810, when the Napoleonic Wars started, and the English came in and said, hey, we want yo island. The French said, could you not? The English said, no, we could not not, and they took it. Then it was an English colony until 1968, when Mauritius was finally granted independence. So, the island was owned by pretty much every European power for 350 years. Except the Spanish? And while all this sugar growing, land swapping and slave trading was going on, the island was progressively cultivated. The native forests were felled, feral animals ran amok, and before you could say God save the Queen, they had an ecological disaster on their hands. Like all islands, Mauritius hosted a wide range of utterly unique flora and fauna. Their most famous resident was the dodo. As we learned in our last episode, animals on islands tend to become freaky, and the dodo was no exception. I mean, if anything, they're the rule, like the classic example. These bulky birds were giant, flightless pigeons. Although they have captured the public's imagination, we know very little about them. Dutch sailors were the first to describe them in 1598, but by the 1660s, they were already extinct. We don't even really know what they looked like, as there are only a handful of drawings known to be made against living models. What we do know is that they were a large, plump-breasted pigeon that weighed up to 23 kilograms. As discussed last week, this was a result of island gigantism. On Mauritius, without any natural predators, the dodo came down from the trees, decided it had no need to fly, and made a great living dining out on the plentiful fallen fruit, which allowed them to expand to their hefty size. But along with this symptom of island syndrome came another one, island tameness. In a land without predators, the dodo had no fear of, well, anything. They were fearless. Nothing had ever threatened them. So when humans came along, they found that the bird was so tame they could walk right up to it and club it in the head which is exactly what they did. And this is how the dodo got the reputation for being stupid. I mean, if you're gonna let a guy walk up to you and club your brain in without taking evasive action, I get it. It's kind of dumb. But this is a symptom of island tameness, not a sign of intelligence, because it happens to a lot of island-dwelling animals. Exactly like how the birds of Guam didn't know to fear tree snakes. Either way, the Dutch hunted them for food pretty successfully, but that isn't what wiped them out. The greater threat turned out to be the feral animals. Pigs, dogs, ferrets. Because the dodo nested on the ground, they were an easy target for these animals. And in particular, the crab-eating macaque loved to eat their eggs, which really goes against their name. They should be called the egg-eating macaque. But who am I to say? And the dodo wasn't the only Mauritanian bird that got wiped out soon after human habitation began. In total, 
12 other birds were driven to extinction on Mauritius for a variety of reasons, from overhunting, to deforestation, to evasive egg-eating monkeys. The island lost ducks, parrots, pigeons, rails, even an owl. All of them went the way of the dodo. So, for nearly 300 years we had birds dropping left, right and centre, all the way through until we get to the 1980s and 90s, when another three birds were brought to the brink themselves. The first was the pink pigeon. In a tragic piece of symmetry, Mauritius also had a blue pigeon, which had already gone extinct. They lost the pigeon for the boys, but could they save the pigeon for the girls? The pink pigeon is a robust bird with subtle blush pink plumes on their underside with a chocolate brown back and wings. In 1991, there were exactly 10 left in the wild, and they were considered the world's rarest pigeon. The second bird was the echo parakeet. They're a sweet little parrot, mostly green, but with a vivid blue marking that connects their eyes like the thin wire rim of a pair of spectacles. Like our pigeon, they were considered the rarest parrot in the world when their population crashed to just 11 birds in 1983. The third bird was the Mauritius kestrel. They're a rather handsome falcon with a white belly decorated with sweet little chevron markings. They fared far worse than the other two, if that's even possible. In 1974, their population dipped to its lowest ebb of just four birds. Never mind rarest kestrel, at the time they were considered to be the rarest bird in the world full stop. It looked like all three were done and dusted. But it was at this time Mauritius said, whoa, maybe we should do something about this. What followed is probably the single most successful attempt to save a group of birds. Here's the thing, we don't call it an ecosystem for nothing. It's an economic system, I lied, it's an ecological system, where numerous elements interact with each other to create a complex cohesive whole. To save these birds, no single action was going to work. So Mauritius did them all. First, the environmental degradation meant that the carrying capacity of the island had been shot to hell. What do I mean by carrying capacity? That's literally how many animals the environment is capable of sustaining. It all comes down to what resources are available for the animals to create a stable, sustainable population. You clear the land, remove all the native food sources, the carrying capacity will drop to nothing. That was a big problem on Mauritius, a place where they really wanted land for sugar. So the first step was to provide supplemental food for the birds. A well-fed bird with ample resources is more willing to breed because they know they've got food for their chicks. The second step to trick the birds into laying more eggs was to remove their first clutch. The conservationists would remove the first clutch of eggs laid in a season and raise those chicks in captivity. This had two great benefits. First, it would free the parents to raise a second clutch, because after losing the first, they will lay a second time to replace them. The other benefit was this helped to create a captive population of birds to help secure their numbers. Next, they had to deal with the other big problem, the invasive species. This took two forms. The first was to protect their food, and the second was to protect their nests from egg poachers. 
the conservationists created feeding devices that only a bird could get into, while things like rats and monkeys couldn't. And they put up barriers near the nests, so crab-slash-egg-eating macaques couldn't nick their eggs. Next, they had to think about the broader environment, reintroducing native plant life so they could move away from giving the birds food and having an actual sustainable environment. It has taken decades of hard work, but the payoff has been remarkable. Each of these birds had a population pretty much in the single digits. They were as close to extinction as you can get, but today... Each species has a population in the hundreds. Indeed, for the kestrel, it is believed that their population is as high as the island can sustain. They've reached the carrying capacity. They're no longer even providing supplemental food to the birds. For hundreds of years, Mauritius was a black name in the birding annals. Today, they are the gold standard for avian conservation. But it wasn't easy, because as we have seen... Islands are fragile places. It takes only the slightest shift on the scale for an entire ecosystem to come crumbling down. Environments that are allowed to develop in isolation with their own conditions become such special places, playing host to animals that live nowhere else on Earth. But if you change just one piece, the entire thing can collapse. Maybe it's a mosquito in a barrel, Maybe it's a snake on a plane. These chance accidents have brought disease and predators to places that had no natural mechanism to cope, and so they died. And then there was Mauritius, where everything you could do wrong, they did, and they did it a lot. Hunt the island for an easy feed? You bet. Introduce predators? Why the hell not? Clear the forest? That sugar needs somewhere to grow. But at the same time, for all the mistakes we've made, Mauritius shows that with the effort and the will, we can make amends. The sad thing, though, is that what is true of islands in general is also true for the Earth as a whole. Because what is the Earth but a small island set adrift in a vast expanse of deadly, deadly nothingness? We humans have tipped the scale in the wrong way for the Earth for a long time. Let's hope we can still pull a Mauritius out of the hat. It's going to take a lot of people working all over the Earth to pull it off. Right now, on Hawaii and Guam, they're doing their part. There are hundreds of people working to restore their environments to bring back their birds. With any luck, one day, birdsong will be heard again on Guam. And so, that's islands for you. Next time, we're going to leave the islands to talk about one of my favourite family of birds, the birds of paradise. They're some of the most beautiful and bizarre birds in existence, and they're found almost exclusively on the island of New Guinea. Oh, um, I guess when I said we'd be leaving islands, that was a lie. We're going to stick with our islands, and I'm going to take you to the world's second largest island, New Guinea. I hope to see you then is one bird, however often I release this podcast not enough for you, then I've got some good news. If you'd like a bird to arrive in your inbox every week, simply send an email to weekly.bird at outlook.com and I'll add you to the Bird of the Week mailing list. No ads, 
no subscriber fees, just beautiful birds flying at you each and every week. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. Guam. Guam. Guam.